Hello and welcome to A Vague Knowledge of Everything. I am Rosie. I am Hope and my mom's here today. Hello. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> For the is... second time. <laughs> yeah. So we had a great idea in during the holiday season that she would come on with her uh, theological PhD work and talk about Ooh. pagan traditions and Christmas traditions and all that kind of stuff. We had a really nice conversation about like, you know, normal traditions. And then we talked about stuff we do in our family and it was really nice and none of the audio worked. <laughs> so we're here today to try it again to talk about uh, mm-hmm. Easter because we have that coming up very mm-hmm. soon. Mm-hmm. So I'm in Pittsburgh right now. So there will be no screaming cats in the background for this episode. Um, Luna likes to did you, are the cats, to say. did you bring the cats? No. Oh no. Our neighbor's they're, watching. Are there, they're being like, they're being cats at. <laughs> yes. Someone is That's sitting good. on the cats. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Cause there's too many dogs up here that it was just, and we'd have to put them together and they don't want to be together anyway. So anyway, my mom's here yeah. and she's very smart and has a lot of <laughs> degrees. Do you want to say a little bit about yourself and all your degrees and how you're very smart? Uh, well, uh, you know, getting a lot of degrees doesn't necessarily mean you're smart. It means you're tenacious. Yeah, but you are smart. So, <laughs> um, so <laughs> I have a seminary degree uh, in church history. I have a master's in library science and I have a PhD uh, in religious studies, but my concentration was primarily Jewish studies uh, and folklore with gender thrown in just for fun. Um, And I teach and work now at an Eastern Catholic seminary. In fact, the only Eastern Catholic seminary in the United States. Um, Yeah. And I teach scripture here and help run their online program. Yeah. Mom stuff. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, just mom stuff. Just regular (laughs) mom stuff. Uh, Yeah. Do you have a... So Easter. So Easter. Easter. So I know, I don't know if I should say this question for later, but there's two Easter's. Uh Uh-huh. So there's like what I'm going to call white people Easter. Okay. And then there's everybody else Easter, right? Okay. Well, tell me the distinction that you're making. There's Orthodox Easter. Orthodox Easter is simply a week later because they aren't on the Gregorian calendar. They're on the Uh, Julian calendar. Okay. So that's up. But they're... uh, Christmas is January uh, 6th mm-hmm. um, instead of December 25th. And um, their Easter can, in fact, coincide with Western Easter. Um, but more often than not, it's a week later. Okay. Rosie, oh, did you know? I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Did you know that Easter that, like, you and I would celebrate is based on the moon cycle? Well, t- it, the date of it. It depends upon the first full moon after uh, the equinox in the spring. And there's another uh, thing that has to happen in there. I don't remember. But um, it's tied to the cycle of the moon um, in the same way that Passover is, but it's reckoned a little differently. So Easter will never fall before March 22nd. It can, in fact, fall on March 22nd if there is if that's the first full moon after, um, and I can't remember, after the vernal, which is the vernal equinox, um, and, but it can't be any later than late April. So it's a very um, 
constrained period of time, but that is what allows for the variability between the dates. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know. Yeah. 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 It, it's a, it's, um, there are a number of religious books that you can look in and they've figured out the dates for all of these things for like hundreds of years. So um, in the Book of Common Prayer, if you look in the back of it, that's the prayer book used in the Episcopal Church or in the Anglican congregations. It has all of that worked out. So you can always find out when Easter is if you are uh, a young child sitting in church and are not very interested in what's going on. You can look through <laughs> those kind of books and, and see how they work that out. Yes. So we should probably give some of our religious backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, some. Yeah background so rosie what did you did you i know you what your story is but do you want to tell listeners about your religious I, upbringing um the uh the easter in my family like my immediate family was not like it wasn't a non-event but it wasn't a religious event for us um i so my parents uh my my mom was religious and kind of like a the like it's a vague christianity way the way a lot of people are where like her family like she, she was made to go to sunday school when she was growing up and that was in like 50s and then early 60s i guess and then when she didn't want to go anymore she didn't want to but i think that she had um i think she had associations with church that were about like being made to go and sit still rather than about like what it actually meant and all of that and i don't think her family was incredibly religious and so she was like eh i'm going to pass on that so we didn't go to church really um i think we went to a couple easter services over the years just so we could get an idea but um but generally we didn't um i didn't really think about like the sort of incongruity about like <laughs> the the things we do on Easter and like you know <laughs> the the things that are said about it in Christianity, but uh, in general, what I would do on Easter is wake up. Oh, sorry, and my my dad came from a Catholic background, um, and uh, and generally, <laughs> like there's a lot of Catholics like him who were like they kind of grow up and then they decide that Catholicism was probably to blame for a lot of stuff. Which hey, maybe, but maybe not because it depends all on the culture you're living in. Um, I think it was the culture he was living in uh but he kind of like he had uh, uh he has he had like a love for catholic churches and stuff and he would like to go visit them but he was not in any way a catholic uh, i would call him more of a buddhist or like spiritualist <laughs> of some yeah. sort uh but my easter morning as a kid basically was that you get up and my mom would have like like we had little Easter baskets, like nothing like the huge, like crazy things, but like a basket with like some Easter candy and like maybe some other like little things in it. And then we would have like a, a hunt where we would have the eggs that would break open and you'd get like candy or money inside. And like, and it was a fun little thing. And maybe we had a nice breakfast or something. And then we'd usually go out and uh, see my older relatives. It was about an hour away. And yeah, it's just like kind of a nice, pleasant day but not particularly religious i guess is how easter was in my family hi <laughs> so you guys froze up and it like stopped recording and everything but it's recording it said, again now so it said your network section session timed out so i'm really glad you had just finished your thought when that happened that was really nice <laughs> all right good to know oh were you guys at, at uh at her school is that yeah, okay. we're at we're at the the seminary right now. Yeah, um, I can cut that part out if it's not kosher. That'll be fine. But uh, do you care if people know where we recorded this? 
no okay no it's fine that we're here yeah <laughs> so no, that's fine yeah, yeah no that's fine all right yeah so, uh, so that was so how, how you... we did easter but uh what about you guys we do church holidays mm -hmm. and we go to the episcopal church because you grew up Episcopalian, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we, I still identify as an Episcopalian, um, but I don't usually talk about it with a lot of people because people associate being religious with being a conservative. Mm -hmm. That's not always the case. And mm -hmm. being from a family with a mom who has a doctorate in religious studies and then a family where we're all named Faith, Hope, and Grace, people have a lot of... Uh, preconceived notions whenever they meet us so i don't usually bring it up <laughs> where they just assume we're going to talk about jesus at them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and that's not usually it's just not something i want to talk about not that i don't want to talk about it but i'm just not going to bring it up myself yeah if i mean you don't want, don't want to be assumed it. to be maybe the worst version of what they've seen a christian be to them right i guess but easter was we go easter I'm okay. I'm getting married the night before Easter this week. So we're a little busy here. Um, but my favorite church um, service is the Easter one really? that we go to. Yeah. I think it's faith too. Hmm. But so at the church that we go to here, everything is dark. Oh, it's Easter Eve. That's what I'm talking about. We go to the Easter Eve service mm -hmm. where everything is dark and they light all the candles and it's really cool when they do this in march like before daylight savings time starts because like the then the church is dark too but when you're doing it in april like the sun's still out so it's still like the church is still lit up a little bit um everybody gets a candle and there's a lot of like very like solemn singing going on and we have a really good um organist at our church who does who's in charge of all what's his what's his title organist. like organist okay. choir master choir master that's it and so he like makes this very beautiful service and everything's in darkness. Cause like, you know, Jesus is still dead. And then in the middle of it, all the lights come on and the music gets very triumphant. It's very, it's a very nice service. And there's less baptisms at that one, which is not true on Easter morning. Cause all, everybody gets baptized <laughs> that morning, but faith and grace and I were all acolytes. So we had to be like the altar girls up on there. So mm -hmm. we would have to do the Easter morning ones. What was the record like? Ten baptisms at once. Sounds right. So, what did you do during that time? So we're like, like getting the candles. We're like helping um, disperse the uh, like during words. What am I doing? What do we do, Mom? You you. We collected. We would stand there with like the wafers, and we would help with the wine during yes, yes. communion. You and would we serve. Would, yeah. We would like carry the cross. So and for the readings, you would go out to the middle of the yes, church. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it was just, it was just so the priest can focus on preaching. Mm -hmm. We were the deckhands on, up there. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Um, well, and it sounds very familiar to what altar boys do um, yeah, in Catholic yeah, yeah, churches yeah. as well. So like, so, so it is, I just wanted a, strip, a description. So yeah, that, that's great. Yeah. Uh, and then my dad was also Catholic and he, oh, where his, he went to Central Catholic here in Pittsburgh. I, I stole this from him today. <laughs> Um, but he still Aww. goes to Catholic church sometimes. Very occasionally. Yeah, he does. He tends to go with, more with us. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. And then do you want to, do you want to talk about your religious uh, background? Um, I was, uh, brought up in a very conservative religious household. And, um, it's interesting that you would say 
um, that when people hear you're Episcopalian that they think you're very conservative because the reality is um, most people when they hear Episcopalian think that you're uh, a crazy uh, liberal um, because <laughs> the Episcopal Church has uh, same-sex marriages and they've accepted um, uh, gay priests and things like that. So they're seen as far more liberal than a lot of other uh, religious traditions, but there's a difference between the church and one's personal morality, and it gets very confusing. But in any event, I grew up in a very, very conservative, uh, Bible-based uh, home. Um, there was not a church service that we missed, um, and uh, and so that was just the way we grew up. Um, we were always uh, part of the church. We were all married in the church. Um, and then each of us, you know, decided to do with that what we would as our children reached a particular age. But um, it's interesting growing up. Easter was never my favorite uh, service because um, all the little girls would get an Easter dress right? Oh my God. I forgot how big of a deal the Easter dress is. So you get this little spring Easter dress and I grew up in Illinois and in March and April, it is still bitterly cold. <laughs> so it was mostly freezing on Easter. Um, and then when we got a little bit older, we would go out uh, for Easter brunch with the family. Oh yeah. Um, and that was nice. That was fun, but it was usually bitterly cold your little legs were cold, um, <laughs> and you didn't. And you didn't want to wear your winter coat because you had this new <laughs> spring, spring dress. So it it was it was not good. Um, and and I, to me, it you know Easter for as a child doesn't compare to Christmas as a child. See, yeah, but okay, I didn't talk about the the family cultural Easter that we have. Cause you made Easter kind of a big deal. Yeah. We and had fun. Your mom also made Easter a big deal as we got older. Yes. Because true. she had some funds and we would go to, so we still find, I'm pretty, do you have Easter baskets for this year? Are we doing? I this? haven't heard from the Easter bunny, so I don't know. <laughs> We're all almost 30. <laughs> We're still finding Easter baskets. Last year, Griffin and my mom, set up that I would find an Easter basket in our apartment, which was very cute and very sweet, but I was a little annoyed because I didn't know what was going on. Um, but so we still find Easter <laughs> baskets every year and it's a race to see who can find it first. It's never faith. And uh, we get a new Easter dress mm -hmm. still. And, and Easter shoes. You'd often yes. get Easter shoes. Yes. And we would go to the Grand Concourse in Pittsburgh, which is like this very nice, like gourmet buffet type deal. There's a whole dessert room, which as a kid is like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> so we go to yeah. Easter Eve service and then we go to an insane brunch. And then our family just kept getting bigger, I think. And it got too expensive. So we stopped uh, doing no, that. No, COVID hit. No, I meant the Grand Concourse. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, no, we haven't gone. I mean, come on. We're not going to. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, the last time we went was 2019 because of yeah. COVID. Uh, all of these things have been. But we still impacted. do brunch, and it's like yeah. a big, nice yeah. brunch. Yeah, and then try. we uh, take a nap for the rest of the day, which yeah. is our holiday MO in yeah. this house. Yeah, pretty chill. That's right. So, uh, yeah. Nice. Uh, did you have any questions that you wanted to get into with the not uh, testimonial parts about Easter? <laughs> 
Um, no, not really. Honestly, I would say I probably know the least amount about. I know less about Easter than a lot of holidays, <laughs> to be quite honest. Like there, there are Jewish holidays I know more about than Easter, just like randomly, just because I've never been super interested in learning in Easter, which I don't know why, because it's really interesting. I think it just kind of never, it's probably because it wasn't a big deal in my house growing up. That's probably why. But anyway, so yeah, I'm interested now. <laughs> so Easter is the called the birthday of the church. And for hundreds of years, it was uh, the major holiday of the church. Um, uh, I think most Western Christians think Christmas is the major holiday. And actually Christmas is a rather, I mean, until relatively recently, Christmas was a religious holiday um, that was much more low key. Um, but Easter was the big holiday. It's called the, like I said, it's called the birthday of the church. Um, for most of Christian history, you're not allowed to get married on Christmas, or I'm, I'm sorry, on Easter, because um, it's Resurrection Sunday, and you just don't do that. That's not cool. Um, plus, also, everybody's in church, so it's like that's not the time yeah. for a wedding. Um, and so the roots of what Hope was talking about, the Easter Eve service, some of that comes from how Judaism marks time um, because in Genesis, time is marked evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. So for Jews, the day starts at sundown, uh, which is why uh, very uh, orthodox or um, very religious Jews will go to Shabbos on um, Friday evening because Saturday starts at sundown on Friday. So that's, and so for the church, which was originally made up of Jews, um, the understanding was that Easter, the Easter vigil begins, actually the, the celebration of Easter once the sun sets. So this idea of, you know, you come in with candles and you're celebrating that you're moving into that period of time when Christ is off the cross but is now um, basically at one with the Father. And so that's why that Easter Eve service, to, to me, um, I find it much more moving than Easter morning. Uh, but that's just a personal thing. And But with sundown, you're moving into, you're actually moving into Easter Sunday. Um, and that's why baptisms in the early church happened on um, on Easter Eve, uh, in the early church, you would be what's called a catechumenate or a catechumen. You would be instructed in the faith for a long period of time, sometimes even a year, year and a half. And so you would be part of the church service until they uh, went towards communion, in which case you would leave because you weren't instructed enough in the faith yet to participate because you have to be able to give assent that you know what's going on and you agree voluntarily to, to do this, that you're not being coerced. Um, and so once you were fully aware and could say, yes, this is what I wanna do, Easter was normally the time that most of those baptisms would take place where you gained full admission to the community and were recognized and um, had a lot of meaning um, with respect to what's going on, which is why today, um, 
little kids uh, will often obviously get baptized as babies, but that's why confirmation is seen as kind of a big deal because it's the first time that you can give verbal assent to what you're doing and saying, yes, I want to join that. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, I mean, it's evolved from this, this early thing, this early Easter uh, experience. And everything I'm talking about really has not a whole lot to do with Easter Bunny at all in any yeah. way, shape or form. In medieval Europe, um, rabbits, if you ever look at a, a medieval tapestry or artwork, especially if it's, uh, well, I was gonna say a woman, but even uh, some medieval men, if there are rabbits around the imagery near the bottom or maybe in the background, mm -hmm. that was a signal that this person was Randy. Um, <laughs> what? Because <laughs> rabbits are a symbol of the lascivious because think about the phrase, they did it like rabbit, yeah. rabbit. And that's what that symbol is. Paintings take so long to do. But that was a way, if you were a painter and you wanted to cast aspersions upon the reputation of the one for whom you were painting, very subtle sort of way of saying, this guy or this gal gets gets around. It's Tinder for the medieval time. You, yes. you have to be really committed to that shade. I mean, like you said, paintings take a lot of time. You got to be like, no, I really want to hit them where it hurts. This <laughs> fight great. is evergreen. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, East, the idea of rabbits are because it's new birth and we're, we're being reborn every Easter. Um, as Christ is rising from the dead, we will rise to new life again. And obviously rabbits who are very good at creating new life are a very good uh, symbol of that. And that, so that got somehow carried over to an Easter bunny. At least you can say with Santa Claus, he has his roots in St. Nicholas of Myra. Right. There is some vague connection there. Easter Bunny, this big guy that you sit on his lap at the mall and get your picture to. You hate the Easter Bunny. Wait, yeah, there I wasn't do. a real one of those? <laughs> Wait, what? what? A six-foot bunny? Yeah, no. I got to tell you, oh. we were at the mall today. Somebody was screaming and of going course. like this because she had to get her picture taken with the Easter oh, I found, Bunny. I always found that frightening absolutely frightening this is uh this is going to give me yet a, just another reason as if i need one to share the picture of my uh it's a painting of my grandfather when he was in the play harvey because like the play requires ah. that you have a painting of a man with like a tall rabbit and so i have, right. we have that hanging in our living room but i'll definitely put that on the instagram because you know like <laughs> it's probably already been on the instagram but like it's about bunnies so i'll just be like yes. hey, this is what we're talking yes. about <laughs> and if, if you want to cast aspersions upon anyone, just throw a little rabbit down the corner and you'll know what that means. Um, so, yeah, but. The, but now I, I now I can't unknow that when I look at that painting of my grandfather, though. So that's a double edged sword there. But yeah, yeah sorry, go yeah, on. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but it, I work at an Eastern Catholic seminary, so um, I have been learning more and more about the Eastern uh, experience, which is it, which is a little different. Um, the whole idea of Pisanki, the um, very ornately decorated Easter eggs that you'll see in Ukrainian or Slovak uh, contexts, um, the symbols, the colors, even the stylized way that they decorate those things, they all have to do 
with Christian symbolism, not of rabbits, um, but Christian symbolism <laughs> around resurrection, hope, um, uh, belief in salvation. So uh, it, it's, they look very stylized, but that stylization has a, is conveying a very particular, and it is a Christian message, more so than some of these more cultural sorts of things. Um, and if you ever have a chance to take a Pisanki class uh, where you learn how to do that, I mean, it's just fascinating because there's dripped wax. Did to, you take one? No, I'm not that artistic. <laughs> um, but I do know people who have, and you drip wax to create some of the boundaries, and then you paint, then you peel away, you drop. Oh. I mean, it's very, very, very involved. Um, and, the, and the people who do this, I mean, it is truly artistic. Did you see that when you went to Slovakia? I did. You did? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. pretty cool. It is very cool stuff. Um, so so if you're uh, of an Eastern Christian persuasion, East, Eastern Orthodox or Eastern Catholic, one of the things that happens, it's called the Great Fast. In the West, it's called Lent. In the East, it's called the Great Fast. And um, you... Uh, What's the word? Fast from meat and cheese, oil, all of that sort of stuff. So you basically follow a vegan diet, uh, at least we do here at the seminary, uh, until uh, Easter Eve, um, if you're so inclined, or Easter morning. And so um, on Easter weekend, you bring your basket to church. And it's a very, um, I was going to say it's very established, but I'm going to say it's established in a particular way because it's usually you've got lamb or kobasi, you've got your pisanki in there. Um, there's a cheese that you make. We make at our house. Oh, Pasca! Yeah, well, that's the bread. Siddits <laughs> oh. uh, yeah. or rutka, which is the cheese made from the whey that's left over from the pasca, from the bread. You have salt in there because salt is life. Um, and you go and get that blessed at the church, and then you can consume those things as part of your Easter celebration. What's interesting about that is there was a lot, I, there's been an awareness over time, obviously, that the church is made up of more than just ethnic Eastern Europeans. For example, in the Southwest, um, there are a lot of people from Hispanic backgrounds that are, are attracted to the Eastern church. And so their baskets will have things like corn husks, uh, uh, maize, tortillas, uh, that <laughs> the things that they have fasted from, right? So you're not gonna eat a tortilla because it's made with um, uh, eggs. It has mm. eggs in it, so you don't, but that's the stuff that you bring. So it's very interesting. It, it has the ability to accommodate uh, new ethnic realities in the church and that's, the vibrancy of any religion, not just Christianity, is its ability to uh, address itself to and incorporate these things under the heading of, you know, this is part of our, our experience, but it can ha have that kind of ethnic, ethnic nuance to it that I think it, uh, I think is really important. I want the record to show I know it's pronounced tortillas. I was just, we say it tortillas to be silly. <laughs> <laughs> people think that I don't know how to say tortilla. I got mean, it. Excuse got me. It. Sorry. Yes. Got it. <laughs> you can clarify. Yes, tortilla. Yeah. Tortilla. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. hold on. <laughs> that's really interesting. Yeah. I didn't even. Yeah, that's a really cool way to incorporate, like, or to leave it open to incorporate other cultures. That's really right. That's a really cool yeah. thing. Yeah. 
Um, and so there's there's that. Um, if if you go around, if you noodle around on the internet, there's going to be a lot of sites that say the very word Easter comes from uh, the Anglo-Saxon, but most religious scholars feel it comes from a Norse, the Norse word for uh, spring, which is Oster. And basically Easter is a celebration of rebirth, uh, which is why it happens in the spring. Um, it, it's, and Jesus is a dying and rising God. He's not the first one uh, at the time of Christianity. There were a lot of dying and rising gods at that time. They didn't promise the same sorts of things, obviously. Otherwise, they would probably still be around, um, which I'm not trying to be triumphalist or anything. But the Christian <laughs> message was one of personal salvation, uh, which uh, was something new at the time. The other dying and rising gods like Addison Sabal or Horus in the Egyptian pantheon, uh, even Mithras. Mithras was a soldier religion of, uh, so it was limited to men, uh, tended to be most uh, in the uh, Roman army, uh, Roman soldiers, um, had elements of a baptism associated with them, but also had this idea of a dying and rising God who would come back in the spring. Um, often, not always, but often these traditions were a way to explain why there was spring and fall, why the God died, mm -hmm. went away, we have fall, and then came back in the spring. Whereas the Christian message uh, was one that wasn't tied to an explanation for why there's spring. Um, it was uh, something very different, very other. And like Judaism, Christianity requ required absolute allegiance. So it wasn't like you could say, well, you know, I believe in the God of the Jews, but there's all these other gods as well. It, it was all or nothing. And that was one of the things that made it very, very different uh, in the ancient world because it required singular devotion. Um, and you could not accommodate all these other gods at the same time. So uh, it, it, it's hard not to sound like I'm being triumphalist here, like, well, Christianity is the best message, and that's why they're around, um, which is kind of a Madison Avenue way to look at it, and that's not what I'm saying <laughs> at all. It was a message but... that connected with a large number yes. of people yes. because it applied yes. to their lives. I mean, that's fair to say. Right. Well, yeah. one, of, one of the things particularly as we're talking about Easter and catechumens being welcomed now to communion for the first time. So one of the innovations of Christianity, um, and you see this most in the letters of Paul in the New Testament, is this thing called fictive kinship groups. Uh, in the ancient world, you were it's a patriarchal world, for good or good, for bad, it just is. Um, and your reputation, your family allegiances were everything. So if your father or your grandfather was a very honorable man in business and in community, then that would accrue to you as well. Um, you would be seen as very honorable and someone with whom we would want to do business or we would contract marriages with you. So those family connections were everything. Now you have Christianity coming on the scene and saying, we're your family now, right? So many of Paul's letters start, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't think people realize how uh, radical that is in the ancient world to say, you're my sister in Christ. No, we don't come from the same family, but I have an obligation to you. And that's 
the thing, and I'm thinking here some of the sociologists of religion who have looked at this early period, it's saying this is the thing that makes Christianity, one of the things that makes it successful is that um, whether you're a slave, whether you're a Gentile, you will be welcomed in this community, you will be supported, you will be cared for, and your family uh, may or may not. Um, there's a sociologist named Rodney Stark, and he talks about a lot of this stuff. And one of the things he points out is plague is an ever-present reality in the ancient world. It wasn't just in medieval Europe. Plague was there because we're all living cheek to jowl in the cities. And when plague strikes, Galen, the, the physician, the early physician that we know about, says, yeah, I'm getting out of Dodge. I got to go. There are a lot of sick people here. <laughs> and the, Christ, the Christians... <laughs> would stay and just do very basic nursing care on other Christians, whether I was related to you or not, and going to your house, giving you fresh bedding, washing you and giving you food and water. And comfort people like hanging out with you. A lot of that kind of care was the difference between literally life and death, your ability to survive a catastrophic illness. and. The church said to widows, so if you're a widow and um, you didn't have a son, or even if you did have a son, your husband's family had financial responsibility for you. But they could say to you, yeah, Rosie, um, we're going to take care of the son. Mazel tov, off you go. No you're more kusan for you. Yeah. yeah we, <laughs> or we're going to marry you off to this really, really older family member who doesn't bring a lot to the table, but if he can get a child with you, we'll take that kid. And you're like, this is really gross and disgusting. I don't want to do this. Because you're, as a missus, that literally meant belonging to your husband mm -hmm. at that point. And you're a lovely 28, 29-year-old woman, and this guy's 60. Disgusting. So what the church, these church communities would say, you're, you're now part of our community. We will financially take care of you. You're not going to get wealthy, but we'll make sure you have basic food and water. You have a place to live. You are now part of our community. So you have a choice. That uh, has very much nicer roots than I realized yeah. compared to what it is now. <laughs> well, I, the church still does do that kind of social welfare stuff. It's not always evident, but it's one of the things that drew people to this early community. Um, and when we're talking about Easter and, and you know, the, the development of these things, these are the associated things where you can say, okay, I could see how that might be a good thing. Um, yeah. They had that kind of financial safety net there. Again, you might not live in the comfort that you're used to, but we'll take but you you're alive. Right. They, you were called a holy widow or a holy virgin. You were re-virginized and brought into that community, and and they were completely okay with that kind of stuff. So, the early church just could be triumphalist in the message, but it, again, there were these other things there that made it very attractive. In a world where most of us, and again, if we're talking about the time of Jesus and the early apostles, life is hard, and then you die. Um, and most of yeah. the pagan pagan religions at the time promised a kind of magical thinking whereby you didn't want the gods to notice you because everything we know the gods of the ancient world are, 
they're capricious. They, they're not interested in a personal relationship with you. I mean, think about the stuff about Zeus. He's a nasty character and he preys upon yeah. human women. Yeah. Your job is to make sure Zeus doesn't notice you. That seriously, and the, the bottom line is, you do. I not mean, it's it's all... great training as a woman walking down the street. I'll say that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you don't want, you just want everything to be okay. So a lot of your investment in gods wasn't what you believed. You were basically buying off various gods. So the bad things didn't happen to you. That's where like sacrifices. Right. Stuff so it becomes more magical thinking. Um, and there are certainly those people with us today. I, and I don't mean to imply that there aren't people who go to church because they think if I go to church, God won't be mad at me. That's not true. And that's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's an education problem on the part of the church that they're not taking care of that. But the roots of early Christianity and particularly, you know, that message is really encapsulated in Easter, you know, the death and resurrection. So in the Eastern church, they have this hymn that they sing, by death he conquered death, and from the tombs he granted us life, right? So it's this very life-affirming sort of thing, not the mea culpa, mea culpa, you know, I, I'm a sinner, no one loves me. Uh, it, it's supposed to be a very, very joyous thing. Um, so anyways, that was a long diatribe. I'm sorry. No, that, that, no, Mom, we brought you on here to talk about this stuff. We want more diatribes. <laughs> We don't know what we're talking about. That's why you're here. <laughs> yeah. If Rosie and I were going to talk about Easter, I'd probably just talk about the Grand Concourse the whole time. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Well, it, it's just, I. so Rosie opened the show by mm -hmm. saying, um, there are those who say, well, they, you know, um, Easter just co-opted a lot of pagan practices and made it its own. And that, and that could be. there. If you know anything about Sol Invictus, Sol Invictus is... From the Roman context, the belief in uh, the sun god and mm -hmm. uh, that the sun returns again in spring and all these wonderful things. And that basically Christianity just took those things on instead of Sol Invictus, it's Christ is, you know, the great, he rises, it's all this light, right? It's this imagery of light and dark. I don't know about that. I would have to study more about that. I know about that in passing. Mm -hmm. But as I said in the Chris Christmas one, which we don't have, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Any any religion worth its salt does that. That's smart. I don't know that Christianity did that because a lot of these things are very unique to Christianity, but the idea that you would be able to say to someone, okay, you worship Sol Invictus, uh, you know, the sun comes back in the spring, it's new life. I'm a Christian. I'm telling you, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking the same language. So um, people today talk about that like, oh, well, that's how we know Christianity is morally bankrupt because they just took what was there and made it their own. And I would say that's good PR. I mean, that just is. Uh, and I don't know that they did that with Easter because the message is so different that this guy rose from the dead. He came to offer you eternal life. And, and all that follows from that in a way that suggests that this guy cares about you, like in the ancient world, nobody cares about you. <laughs> um, so it, it's, if in fact, some of the imagery came from other traditions, which clearly the rabbit um, clearly comes from outside, comes from other pagan traditions, that's fine. That's just, that's just good PR. I mean, I think that's smart. Yeah. 
Yeah, but people take like coincidences and similarities and conflate that with, oh, they must have right. just stolen it and they made up right. this holiday around this, as opposed to it being, well, no, we have a, a holiday that's around at the same time. Yeah, yes. I, I mean, I do think yes. there's there's definitely like, or not definitely, like, I mean, I think like you hear about pagan elements being incorporated into stuff, but as as you've said, I think that that it does seem like that's more of it's more of a personal choice of the people celebrating it than a PR move on behalf right. of the church, but it, it gives yeah. us a point of conversation upon which we can agree. Um, I know that there are those though who get very upset when they find out that Christ isn't the first dying and rising God, that there are a lot of other dying and rising gods out there. Um, and I, I hope none of your listeners are upset about that because the reality is that, yeah, there's a lot of uh, religions that claim to have a dying and rising God. But again, you've got something very different going on here in what the, the Christian community says happens on Easter Sunday. And um, when you read about other dying and rising gods like Horus in the Egyptian pantheon or Addison Sabel, there's a lot of fertility stuff going on there. Um, so that uh, when Addis Watt rains down, you know, this fluid that Sibel opens up to receive, you know, you're getting some of this. That's a metaphor. Symbolic fertility <laughs> metaphor. Christ is not a fertility God. There is nothing about this that has anything to do with fertility. Um, the idea that we enter or we recreate a sexual relationship with our God by visiting various uh, religious functionaries that will help us do that. I mean, just no, no, <laughs> not, not part of this at all. And the other thing is, <clears throat> and you can just give me the high sign when you want me to stop. Keep, please keep talking. Stop being weird. So the other thing is in the <laughs> ancient world, particularly Greco-Roman world out of which Christianity arose, um, the most virile male, and this is probably more true in the Roman context than the Greek, but it's true there as well. The most virile male is that male who can hold on to, has self-control, can take care of himself. And it was thought in the, the medicine of the time that a man was born with a limited amount of semen. He only had so much semen in him. And so you didn't waste that because that was the heart of your virility, your masculinity. So the most virile man, right, the, the heroic male, is the one who has the self-control to hold on to his semen. So you're not out there monkeying around, although certainly there are men doing that, but the man of self-control who only has sex to reproduce, he's very virile. This, is, this moves into this church context where celibacy, that kind of self-control where you are completely focused on God, these were the most masculine men at the time. And celibacy today has become something aberrant, kind of deviant. Yeah, I was going to ask you, can you trace, the kids today are calling it purity culture, mm -hmm. where you have the purity rings that you mm -hmm. wear, and it's like a big deal, and you're like very... I want to tell you a story, but I, I think it, it might upset you and it's kind of gross, but there's a lot of, I don't, you can, you can maybe cut this out and I'm, I don't know if you know about this. There's girls as they're like, you know, starting to hang out with boys 
and stuff, they take it very literally where they're like, well, we're not going to do this the normal way. So you can go in the back door. That's gross. <laughs> but that's what, and it's like, that's not yeah. different. Like that's right. the same thing. It's not the letter of the law, but <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's like, and I hear you talking about this with your students and they, you guys bet you, you butt heads with some of your students because they take it very literally where they're reading the words and not what it says. Right. So, and the, so I'm, I wanted to ask just real quick, can you, are you able to trace like, from purity culture to like this idea of the virile masculine self-control guy. Do you think that's where it came from originally no. where it was like, save yourself for Jesus and like what so you're just saying today, you've got a bit of a divide going on here because in Catholicism, certainly the roots of it lie in the early church mm -hmm. that, that, and we're talking about constructions of masculinity, which are external to the church. But in the culture, in that culture, that was the most virile male. The, the Latin word virtus comes from vir, which means man, yeah. right? So your virtue, right? Your ability to control yourself was seen as the highest form of masculinity. Um, certainly uh, in the medieval church, when it became limited to a clerical class, um, I don't know as much about masculinity, but they were seen as an authoritarian figure because they undertook this extraordinary vow. Fast forward to today, you're finding a lot of that purity culture, not in response to the early church as much as a response against the world today. So mm -hmm. that it, it seems more of a cultural move than a religious move. It certainly has a lot of the marks of religious culture, obviously. Um, but um, I have to be honest, there's nothing in the New Testament that says you have to be a virgin when you get married. It doesn't, really? it doesn't say you don't have to be a virgin. That's, it's not interested in talking yeah. about that. It talks about- So it was more of a cultural, uh, a cultural rule well, than a, yeah. Yeah, and there's always, there's always been, yes, you know, if you were an if you're an ancient Roman man, um, and you had made your career, you wanted a chaste girl. You wanted a girl who wasn't sleeping around because that accrues to you in an honor shame culture. You're dishonored by the the purity of your household, including your women. And there's an element of that still here today. What what purity culture today seems to be is a profound reaction against a world that seems to have swung too far in the other direction mm. um, where, you know, everything is allowable. Um, you know, we value all lives. Um, there's a France. No, there's a, what's the word I'm looking for? Society of Jesus. Uh, uh, Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit. That's the word I couldn't think of who has written a book called Building Bridges, who is very much reaching out to the lesbian and gay culture um, and saying, I don't value this expression in you, but you have a place in the church. And we have an obligation to include you in the church. And this is a hotly contested thing right now. And there are those very thoughtful uh, Catholics who look at Father Martin and say, he is anathema, he has no place in the church. Um, and it is seen as accommodation to a culture that is antithetical to Christian values. Who are they to say who's not allowed in the church when you just talked about how they wanted everybody to be part of the church? 
There was an episode of Queer Eye, the new one that makes everybody cry a lot, where I cried a lot at this one because actually I think I wanted to, but I was on Lexapro, so I didn't have a lot of feelings. But so it's a priest and he's talking about kind of what you talked to us about when you're growing up with the Bible, where it says one thing and it's been perverted to mean something else. It's been interpreted. Mm-hmm. Inter- yeah. Interpreted. In I'm this, not going to say perverted. The way they were talking about mm-hmm. it, it said, um, just talking about where homosexuality comes up in the Bible mm-hmm. and how it, mm-hmm. there was gay people, mm-hmm. but it says something different now. And now people say, oh, there was no gay people in the Bible. It's not allowed. And then they take this guy to co- talk to other LGBT um, priests and stuff and they're talking to him and there's something going on with like he he didn't feel like he could be a priest and the other one is saying like why would you deny yourself as a child of God and I was just if I could have cried then I probably would have but I had I was on the wrong medication but I was like this is a lot to deal with right now but it's very complicated it's yeah. very, the Bible is very particular things it says about a man who would lay with man as a woman um, there's, you know, and it, it's not, it's not appropriate for the, in the Old Testament community. And Paul very clearly says, one of the things it doesn't say though, is can a woman lay with another woman? And some have said, does that mean lesbianism is permissible? Or did these guys just not know about it? The reality <laughs> is it's a, it's a patriarchal world. I don't care if you like gals, you're going to get married. You're going to get married <laughs> to a guy. Um, and you're going to have babies. And yeah. I don't care what kind of girlfriend you have on the side, but this is the That's world. That's the kicker, yeah. is that I don't care about the girlfriend on the side. Well, I don't, I'm, I'm being yeah. a little flippant. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. Of course they care. But in any event, I don't know how we got off on this, Ted. Oh, I mean, I, oh go ahead. So talking about purity culture, it's it's much more complicated than A plus B equals C. There's, mm-hmm. there's culture. And then my point was, there are evolving gender identities where today you might look at someone like this purity culture, or you might look at a man who says, I am called to us, or a woman who says, I'm called to a celibate, sacred uh, life, and think, wow, that's weird. Whereas in the ancient world, that wasn't weird at all. In fact, that was highly valued um, as the most masculine thing you can do. So just, it's a way to say that which looks deviant or aberrant or weird to us now would not have in another mm-hmm. context. Yeah. I, yeah, I, it's interesting. The whole, even you brought up purity culture, it always makes me, it always makes me bristle because it makes me think of, you know, girls who go to the purity balls with their fathers and that like the symbolism of that and how it's kind of like that, that part gets under my skin, uh, of course, but the whole idea of someone saying like, Oh, I've made this decision to, to be celibate until marriage, that in itself is totally fine. And I really, I, I do wish the communities that are coming at it from the, the patriarchal standpoint where where girls are like forced into the purity culture could allow it to be a choice because I think it's a completely yeah. valid choice. It like, is. It's just, yeah, so some of the purity culture that, that Hope I'm sure has seen has been somewhere it's a little bit more forced on, which is yeah. I think probably where you end up with like, you know, oh, okay, I'll obey the letter of the law. You can go in the back door. Like that's, you know, obviously that's not a person who's like, oh, I'm I'm making this decision because I'm committing for myself, you know, like the, yeah. so I think that the element of personal choice is just so important in like what is, 
you know, <laughs> what is and isn't a misuse, I suppose. And it's all about control and whether or not you have control of your own life. Yeah. I, but, I know when our parents, our mutual parents were growing up, the assumption was that all girls were virgin until they got married. And um, the, the random girl who got caught, right, who got pregnant out of wedlock, either got sent away or married PDQ, like, right, because there was such social judgment about that. Now, within a relatively little, short period of time, probably since the pill came on the stage, to be honest, um, the assumption is that everybody's sexually active. And that person who says, no, no, I'm a virgin and I want to be a virgin is the outlier is the weird one now. So these things can change very quickly. They can look very, very different. And it it is always going to inform the way you read scripture. So when you talk about homosexuality, you talk about these things, it's much more complicated than just saying, we've got this line here. Yeah. You've, you've got to look at a lot more of what's going on there in context and interpretation, not accommodation to the culture, but be able to say it's saying something very important we need to understand what that is if we are people of, of faith it's that's mostly what this podcast gets to at the bottom line of each episode it's just if you just do your research and just look at more than one thing yeah. and like think outside of your own brain you're probably going to discover a lot more instead of just like listening to whatever somebody tells you whether that be like a preacher at a mega church mm -hmm. or a priest that you grew up with in your conservative whatever or on the internet or the internet but you have to be willing to be schooled too and you have to be willing to say i might have been wrong nobody wants to mm -hmm. do that. yeah that's hard to do yeah it's hard to do. that's very hard but that's intellectually honest to be able to say i thought i knew what this was about i may not that's an emotional maturity thing too mm -hmm. to be able to say i was wrong like that's that that's like a twofer in terms of intellectual maturity and emotional maturity and intelligence yeah. to be able to say what I've been taught wasn't right. And then a step further from that is I'm going to see what else is going on. Right. And be willing to, to say, I thought I knew some, I know nothing. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You guys have always yeah. like told me if I was the smartest person in the room, I'm probably in the wrong room. And I think a lot of people want to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah. Well, nobody wants to look dumb. <laughs> or if you always think you're the smartest person it. in the room, I feel like you're either in the wrong room or you're wrong. <laughs> like, or, or you're giving a lot of speeches. <laughs> yeah, and you're going to be in the room by yourself pretty yeah. soon. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of look at it as like, as you know like the the super smart people are people who like to say they're super smart it's similar to what i've heard about seasickness was like there's two kinds of people people who haven't been seasick yet and liars and so you could say like <laughs> you know this is a smart person he's not been wrong yet <laughs> or he's making but, it up. <laughs> yeah but yeah I, I you haven't know. been you haven't been to dana point after a storm obviously <laughs> <laughs> oh my god but Rosie and I were okay. out there. Real quick ghost oh, yeah. story. We were out there like our first day sale out in California. We're at Dana Point and it had been like storming. And we're out there and I'm like, 
I'm, I'm going to blow chunks here pretty soon. And I looked at Rosie. I was like, is it like this all the time on the Pacific? And she goes, no, this is weird. And I was like, okay, because I was going to have to go home like, to Pittsburgh. <laughs> Not that I far cannot... in. We were like I... close to land too. It wasn't. Yeah, it was... <laughs> and I was like, and then I did. I, uh, I did. And there was an audience. They wouldn't like go away. I'm like, if you would watch, you... <laughs> I'm just puking in a bucket out here on the head rig. Like, can I help you? <laughs> I'm not going to give you a free sample or anything. Oh, Chris. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so Easter. Yeah. Yes. Easter. Um, okay. So, yeah. So enjoy those bunnies. <laughs> Easter. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like we're coming to a kind of a conclusion there. We could talk about what our Easter plans are this year. <laughs> what are we're your gonna... Easter plans? We're going to a destination wedding. It's not. It's an eerie, Mom. It's not a destination <laughs> wedding. It's not a destination for anybody. Yes. Hope Hope is getting married on four three two one. How are you on Holy Saturday? It's a Holy Saturday. It is Holy Saturday. It's four three two one. Like, yeah, this is, four three yeah. two one. This is your this is your second wedding. Mom has three girls. That we know of. A lot of a lot of energy. Yeah. A lot of energy. Very loud. Yes. How? Yes. A lot of energy. How are you feeling out in the field as a second-time mother of the bride? You know what? It's not about me. And what? If <laughs> if you're happy with the person that you that you're with, nothing matters. That's all I need to see. Yeah. You're so. getting. We're getting adding a lot of height to this Hobbit family. Yes. yes. <laughs> and a lot of hair. A lot of hair. That's a lot, a lot of, of hair on that head. Mm -hmm. Yep. 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 Yeah. We are not a tall people. Nope. Is it? But you were saying the other day you were talking about Justin, and you said, "Yeah, my son-in-law." Then you were like, "Oh, that's weird. <laughs> that felt weird." There it is. Now you have two of them. Indeed, pretty soon. Pretty soon. Not yet. What are you doing for Easter, Rosie? She's coming um, away. Wait, what? <laughs> what? That's, that's a wedding dessert. <laughs> I, so I, 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 I'm going to make the cheesecakes. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we're having some cheesecakes. Cheesecake strawberries and chocolate. Yummy. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, we're all a little busy. <laughs> yeah, I actually like I'm glad there's something fun going on because uh because I was thinking about it and I'm like, Easter I think has become more of a thing for me as an adult. And I think the reason for that is because uh well, I don't tend to go visit my family for it because, like, why would I? It wasn't a big deal for us growing up. Um, but for Chris's family, it's a big deal because they like to find lots of reasons to hang out because they oh, all, you know, nice. they're they're a big close family. You know, they're more similar to your guys's family, and so they like hanging out. And uh, I, the first, not the first, the first one I went to was the Thanksgiving, I guess. So it was oh, so weird. <laughs> yeah why do I remember oh no the okay so the first time that I met Chris's grandma I think um who well what one of Chris's grandmas I think the first time I went to like the sort of ancestral family home of the Kusans and Malden where this, like where, where they don't live anymore I think that was on Easter no no this is the Kusan branch the the um yeah Mar Marcella Kusan his his grandma on his dad's side um oh, okay. but the oh the reason I remember it is because like there was a new baby and so it was like the most of his family I had ever seen at any one time got into this like tiny little well not tiny but like smallish house 
and so it was like so packed and like everyone's having a great time kids are running around you know like and it was just everyone got together because grandma was hosting this easter thing and so we went there and i remember at one point it was so loud with people like yelling loving things at each other and you know just being generally boisterous uh that chris like made eye contact with me and started singing amazing grace and was singing so loudly that people didn't notice or they noticed and were like ah, eh, whatever it's just chris and they would just continue their conversations <laughs> so there's like it's overwhelming, but it's a really fun feeling. So I'm like, I'm kind of glad something else is going on because I'm kind of ready for another big Kusan holiday. And this is like kind of the closest thing. So, wow. you know, Griffin, it's very nice of you Griffin, to get, <laughs> to get married. Griffin and Rosie had very similar experiences where they came from like smaller, quiet families and they're marrying into very energetic a lot they of opinions. Families. Mm -hmm. But we are a very estrogen forward, as it turns out. <laughs> um, so sometimes we'll come around and be like, this is a lot of noise in this house. And I'm like, yeah, it's a holiday. That's what it sounds like on a holiday. Mm -hmm. Is you walk, We walk in Uncle Ron's house and you go, hello, stupid. <laughs> and then Uncle Ron, Uncle Ron goes, oh, yeah, hello, stupid. <laughs> they both have PhDs. Like, they're not stupid. <laughs> But yeah, and then you guys, and then somebody makes fun of Aunt Jen for being mm -hmm. too shrill. Mm -hmm. And if Aunt Linda's there, then she's gonna, you and her are gonna wheezy laugh about something at some point. Yeah. So. And Dad's gonna be in the corner going, "Oh my God!" There's a lot of noise here. A lot yes. of noise. He, he, Dad did the same thing. He came from a quiet. It, it gets to him sometimes. Family, a little too loud. I, I, people do that, you know. Like, like people, people tend to find, I think complimentary partners in whatever yeah. way and we also do the thing where we kind of mirror the way our parents chose partners and like there's a, there's a lot of that going on like i it's it's funny because i actually see chris's dad sometimes and i'm like i'm way more similar to you because you're kind of like the quiet guy in the background hanging out like i could totally like i get that <laughs> but but yeah it's interesting. I was at, yeah, I, I take some walks sometimes when I'm like at the big holidays. I'll take a walk or take a nap, you know, just because it gets like <laughs> it, it gets to be a lot sometimes. The point where I'm like, all right, I just got to go lie down because this is mm -hmm. <laughs> so much. Going on. I take to my bed. Yep. Uh, I was at Griffin's house one time and his parents were there and nobody was saying anything. Right. And I was like, are we in a fight? Are we all mad at each other? And Griffin was like, no, we're hanging out. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Why? It looks so different. Why is nobody talking? I'm very <laughs> uncomfortable. As I've kept hanging out with them, they've become more extroverted with me. And then as Griffin's hung out with us, he's become more extroverted around you guys, mm -hmm. which I think is a sign that things are, that it, introverts like you. Yeah. For the moment. Yeah. For the moment. Yeah. For the moment. Mom, thanks so much for doing this. Hey, yeah. Glad thank you so mom. much. Glad to come on and pontificate anytime you want. That's great. You I, I'm going to. Anytime. As soon as I, as soon as we hop off of this, I will download the audio and test it um, so that we know that it works. Yes, we gotta do <laughs> um, it again. Might as well do I'm it nervous. this week. <laughs> anyway, well, thank yeah, you. But yeah. it should be fun. Yeah. Well, we usually right. do a sign off. Is there anything that you would want to say as your sign off? Like, I'm Dr. Sandra, and happy spring holidays to everyone. What What is it? You always come home and you're like, did you know that today is the celebration of St. What's whatever? Today's Palm Sunday. Well, happy Palm Sunday, Mom. Happy Palm Sunday to everyone. Everybody. All the ones. Yep. All, All right. right. I'm Rosie and facts matter.
I'm hoping now that you know better, be better. And also, next time you hear me, I will be a married lady. <laughs> Four, three, two, one. Four, three, two, one. Here we go. Four, three, Step two, one. Here we go. <laughs>